Good morning. It was a very loud response. There we go. At least one person is awake. I don't know about the rest of y'all. Um, hey, it's really good to be here. Good to see your faces, and I can tell that you guys are awake because uh, I can see your eyeballs, so that's great. Hey, um, my name is Jeff Nine. I'm one of the pastors here, and, and it really is uh, just a, a joy to gather. Um, I've actually missed the last couple of weeks being here. Uh, two weeks ago, I got a chance to serve with one of our church plants in Iowa and in our team that we sent out a couple of years ago to plant up there and uh, then was traveling last weekend. So it's really good to be back with you this morning. I'd love a chance to get to meet you if I haven't yet met you. Uh, and I also want to say specifically, if you're here and you're not a Christian, thank you for being here. Uh, it, it means a lot, and it's actually, it's actually a courageous thing to do to step into a space where maybe you, you think that, you're gonna, that your, your beliefs may not line up with what everybody else in the room is, is feeling and thinking. And I just want to say, man, this is a place where no question is off limits, no skepticism is off limits. Uh, you can bring your, your, all your questions, and we would love to process that with you. Uh, we believe that the Bible is true, and we believe that it gives us hope. And we're not intimidated by any questions that some might come. And so we'd love to dialogue with you and talk with you and, and just say that you are welcome here. So thanks for being here this morning. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask you to pray for me. Uh, the text we're stepping into uh, is really an introduction into a massive turn that's happening in the Gospel of Mark uh, that, that I think is going to be really significant for us this morning. So let's pray. God, would you speak to us? As you spoke to the disciples, would you speak to us? As you taught them, would you teach us? Would you meet us in the hopes and the expectations that we bring? And would you teach us where our hope should lie? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This story in Mark is really interesting because it really represents a significant and critical pivot in the, the Gospel of Mark. We've been walking through Mark for months. If you're new with us, we've, we've been walking through this for most of this year, looking at what we learn about Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. But this particular story represents a significant pivot, uh, what one of the commentators said is the introduction to the third act of Mark. Uh, there, everything that happens from this point on in the Gospel of Mark is going to happen in and around the city of Jerusalem. Now, it may seem like an insignificant kind of harmless little story. It, it may seem like a story that we could easily skip over, but I want to slow us down because the situation that we, that we just read about, and we're going to look back at that text in a second, is monumental in the life and the experience of the disciples. Monumental in the life of the disciples. You see, they were, on, they were in this season of anticipation, longing and waiting for a Messiah to come. As Bryce just said, we're about to step into a season of Advent in which it's a, it's a moment where we get to, to come alongside the anticipation of the Old Testament saints waiting for Jesus' coming. They waited for his first coming. We await his second. But there's longing. There's longing behind their posture. And so what I want us to do is I want us to look at this story from the perspective of the disciples. I want us to look from the perspective of the disciples. You see, this trip into Jerusalem is not a field trip. This is not a random vacation. Hey, Jesus has got a good timeshare in Jerusalem. We're going to go hang out for the weekend. That's not what this trip is. This trip is, is monumental in terms of the, what the disciples are anticipating and it's also monumental because the chapters that come later in Mark are going to turn the world on its head in the life of these disciples. 
So let's look first at what the hope of the disciples was. And let's look at this text again, Mark 11, 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. Now, I want to stop right here and just, and just explain. The Mount of Olives was this mount, mountain right on the outside of the city. And it was kind of like if you were coming up to Jerusalem, you'd come to the Mount of Olives and you would look down on the city. You would see it. Now, many of the disciples had probably never even seen Jerusalem before. So this was a sight to behold in a, in a, in a moment of significance. And then Jesus said to them, verse 2, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied it at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing were uh, there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they said, told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. You see, Jerusalem is not a neutral place here in the storyline of Mark. We, we've heard a lot of, a lot of town names uh, throughout our journey in Mark, that he went from this place to that place to this place to this place. This is not just the next city on a journey. That, that actually Jerusalem was for these disciples of Jesus a place of political and religious significance because it was the center of what was happening in the Jewish world. It was the center of what was happening actively in the Jewish world. It was the center of what had happened in the history of Israel. It was also the center of their hope for a future Messiah to come. That Jerusalem brought with it a whole lot of expectations and a whole lot of hope. So as these disciples come to the Mount of Olives and they look down on the city, as I mentioned a while ago, many, some of these disciples, may this may be their first visit ever to Jerusalem, and they're just taking it in. And it's a really exciting time. I, I remember the first time as a, as, a, as a, I think I was in high school, um, or college, I can't remember which, when I got to go to Washington, D.C. for the first time. And it was one of those things that just growing up on an Oklahoma farm, you saw pictures of and heard stories of. But here I am, walking through a building, looking at the Declaration of Independence. I wanted to steal it. No, actually, that was before the movie, so I didn't want to steal it. Um, you're seeing the Declaration of Independence. You're, you're walking through the halls of these buildings that just have legendary status. And you're walking in the city, kind of looking around, going, um, you're surrounded by people in places of influence, of status, and of power. That's much what the disciples would have been feeling as they approach Jerusalem. But see, it wasn't just that Jerusalem was significant historically. It was actually the center of their hopes as a nation. It was their hopes of a nation. The prophets before had given promises of a future Savior who would deliver Israel, and, and Jerusalem was always at the center of those Images. You see, three chapters ago in Mark 8, 
In Mark 8, we read this story in which Jesus comes to his disciples. Now, Jesus has been going around uh, all of the area of Galilee, teaching, healing, doing miracles, um, and he was doing all kinds of things that had, had a lot of eyes uh, wide open and a lot of ears open, listening to this guy, seeing what was happening, and a lot of hopes were beginning to rise because normal people don't do the kind of things that Jesus was doing. And so there were these anticipations, and Jesus at one point gathers them together and he goes, hey, who do the people around Galilee say that I am? And they're like, oh, man, some of them think you're a prophet, some of them think you're Elijah, come back from the dead. I mean, some of you, there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of anticipation here, and, and Jesus says, well, who do, who do you say that I am? And Peter, at this moment, steps out, probably stepping out on a limb and goes, I think you're the one we've been waiting for, the Messiah, the Christ. And Jesus says, you're right. Now, I want you to imagine just for a moment what that meant for a Jewish believer. See, these Jewish believers had been taught for over the centuries by what the prophets had said, that one day a Messiah would come that would rescue Jerusalem. All of their hopes were pinned on a, on a future king who would, was to come. And now they're sitting in a room with a guy who does the things that the Messiah is supposed to do, and he just said, yes, you're right, I'm the Messiah. What just happened? Their hopes begin to explode. Their hopes begin to explode. They, they recognized that at this moment, they stood on the precipice of something big and significant that was going to happen both politically and religiously. Now, this hope was built out of two places. It was built out of the history of Israel and the voice of the prophets. You see, the history of Israel showed God's faithfulness to lead them out of slavery in Egypt into a promised land. And then from a promised land into a kingdom that was established, a kingdom that at an, in initially was one of prominence, but then they begin to, the history of, of the Old Testament tells about the rise and the fall, and the rise and the fall of Israel and Judah throughout time, and then eventually their exile. Eventually, Enemies come in and take over Israel. And they are left on the outside. Exiles in a land that should be theirs. But there was a hope and a promise because of the voice of the, promise, the prophets that it wouldn't always be this way. That one day, one was coming to rescue Israel yet again. Out of their troubled history, God through the Messiah was going to come and save his people again. And the prophets called the people to repentance, and it declared a future hope. A future hope in a new king, one who is a Messiah, a rescuer, a deliverer. But see, in the midst of all of these prophecies was the center, was the place of Jerusalem. So they had these hopes in the Messiah, but these hopes were not just connected to a person, they were connected to a place. To Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the center of political power in their day, and it was also the center of this, this prophetic image, this prophetic vision of what would happen when a new king came. It was the center of religious power. It was where the temple was and where all the religious leaders gathered. And it was the center of, in this prophetic vision, of what would happen when there would be spiritual renewal and revival in the nation. And it was the, sense, it was the center of corporate identity. For ancient Israel, they pointed to Jerusalem as that's our identity is, 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 is symbolically represented by that city. 
And there was a sense in which Jerusalem would be reestablished as the center of this people. You see, the, the disciples had a strong connection between Messiah and Jerusalem because it was connected in the Old Testament. Their hopes were attached to a person and to a place. But look, what happens when all those hopes are now seen from Mount of Olives as this Messiah approaches that Jerusalem? In that moment, hopes no longer stay as floaty hopes. They become expectations, don't they? When I step into a a space in which I have longed and had these long hopes, and I see that maybe that hope will be fulfilled, I now begin to have strong expectations. And the disciples did. They had expectations of what Jesus was going to do. You see, in the weeks and the months leading up to this moment, the Bible tells us that Jesus at a point in his ministry turned his eyes and turned his focus directly at Jerusalem and made a beeline to the city. Luke 9 tells us this. We see this in Mark as well. That he's, he has work to do in Jerusalem. It's just not the work that the disciples expected. You see, they weren't just excited to see Jerusalem. They were excited because they were on the edge of all these massive expectations coming to fulfillment. They had read the Old Testament prophets. And now what I want you to imagine, the disciples are in this place watching Jesus on a donkey go into Jerusalem as the people are saying these words, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Remember that from our verse? The people are crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, the best direct translation of this is save us. Please save us. Come save us. And this word, this phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, these two things are picked up immediately in the Jewish mind. They turn their attention to Psalm 118. I want to read a couple of the verses from Psalm 118 because this is what the disciples would have immediately thought about. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the thrones of the or up to the horns of the altar. You are my God. I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. You see, this psalm right here is full of messianic hope, and the disciples are paying attention. They watch what's happening, and these hopes rise and turn to expectations, because not only was their mind drawn to Psalm 118, their minds were probably more directly pulled to the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble. And listen to this, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, this prophecy was given hundreds of years before this encounter. But the the Jewish people knew these prophecies by heart. 
And so what happens is the disciples come down from the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem, imagining or knowing that the Messiah is with them as they come into this city of prominence. And as they do, what's Jesus riding? A donkey, the foal of a donkey, a small colt, exactly like Zechariah promised. So what they imagine is what comes next in Zechariah is about to come next in their journey into Jerusalem. Listen to the rest of this prophecy. I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore, you do- to, restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim my arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. What are the disciples expecting at this moment? Jesus, their Messiah, is on a donkey, just like Zechariah said, going into Jerusalem, just like the Old Testament prophecy said. And what are they expecting? War. War. They're expecting at this point that Jesus is going to come in, kick the Romans out, kick everybody else out, and restore Israel to its prominence, what it used to be. They're expecting a battle. You see, they saw him as the new king. They saw him as Messiah, but they misunderstood what that meant. You see, Jesus had kept telling them what was going to happen when they got to Jerusalem. Three different times in Mark, he's very explicit. When we get to Jerusalem, this is going to happen. I want to look at one of those. That's in Mark 10. We read this a couple of weeks ago. It says, as they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was about to happen to them, saying, listen to this, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This is the third time Jesus has said this this explicitly. The first time in, in, chapter, in chapter 8, uh, when he says this, Peter pulls Jesus aside and goes, Never, Lord, that would never happen. I'll fight for you. You're not going to die. You're not, messiahs don't die. Messiahs win. The next chapter, chapter 9, he tells them once again. And at that point, they're, like, they're just dumbfounded. They don't understand what it says. And the text says they were afraid to even ask any questions. And the third time, the one that we just read, is a fascinating little interchange in the immediately following verses, one we read about a couple of weeks ago. Look at verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's always a dangerous, especially if you're a parent and your kids say that. My kids are listening. Don't ever start with that. And he said to them, What do you want me to do? do <clears throat> what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left in your 
glory. See, what are they anticipating? They're anticipating war. And so what they're asking Jesus to do is, hey, when we get to Jerusalem and we, and we kick the Romans out and we reestablish the throne, hey, um, we're pretty good leaders. And, and, and James here wants to, wants to be Secretary of State. And, and I mean, I think I'd make a pretty good vice president. That's essentially what they're saying. Because what they're expecting is political victory and they want political prominence. But listen, the disciples could not hear the words of Jesus through the roar of their own expectations. Jesus has told them three times what was going to happen. And they couldn't hear it because ringing in their ears were these expectations of what Jesus would do for them. He was going to dominate. He was going to win. They didn't get it. Thought they were coming to Jerusalem to take over. They had no category for a suffering king. They didn't believe that Jesus was going to come and die. Maybe they thought it was just one of those weird parables that Jesus does. You know, when he tells that story, you're like, I don't understand what he means. He's just sometimes obscure. Surely he's not actually going to die because we've read the Old Testament prophets. We know what really happens. Can I just stop for a second and ask how often do we do that to Jesus? We have expectations for how he's going to meet us in the situation we're in. We have expectations for what victory is going to look like. We have expectations for what his grace to us will look like. And we want it to look a particular way. And when he tells us to trust him in a way that seems hard, in a way that seems counterintuitive, we miss it through the roar of the ex- our own expectations screaming in our ears. That's what's happening with these disciples. They anticipated victory, and they never saw the death that was coming. That's where the story kind of leaves off. The expectations are high. But I want to turn our attention to what's about to come. Because this story, this scene, is setting us up for what comes next. What's coming in the the next couple of chapters is Jesus is going to shatter their expectations and turn their world completely on its head. What Jesus is going to do is he's going to invite the disciples into a radically different kind of hope. They had their own hopes. They had their own expectations. Jesus is now going to call them to lay those down and embrace a radically different kind of hope. You see, it's important to realize that Mark orders his stories and, and, and includes and doesn't include things that happen in the life and ministry of Jesus because he's weaving these things together to make uh, theological points and to help us understand what's actually happening in a moment. The, these stories, these healing stories that Jesus gives, are not, are, they're not randomly just kind of sprinkled out there. This isn't Mark just going, oh, what did Jesus, oh, yeah, I remember when Jesus did such and such, oh, yeah, what else did he do? And, and just collecting these stories. He actually lines them up in theological significance. It's really remarkable the way that Mark writes it. Sometimes, let me just say this, sometimes when we're preaching through this, we're focusing on one story at a time, and if we don't step back, we miss it. So I want to encourage you, 
to spend time reading through large swaths of Mark together, and you'll start seeing this. I bring your attention to that because what we talked about last week is really significant for what is about to come. Last week, there was this healing of a blind man named Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus is wandering around, physically blind, can't see anything, and yet he hears that Jesus is with him, and he cries out to the son of David. He sees who Jesus is, even though he can't see him with his eyes, but Jesus heals him. And what we come away from that story into these next stories is we realize that there was a prophetic way in which Bartimaeus was the disciples. God, in his mercy, healed Bartimaeus, and he's about to heal the sight of the disciples. You see, the disciples needed a different set of eyes. They need to see differently. Right now, they see Jesus as a political savior who will dominate the enemy and restore the throne by the sword. And that's what they think they're on the edge of. But what they will come to see is a savior who lays down his life to save them from their sins and their rebellion. They see Jesus as one who's going to bring victory by political domination. What they're about to see is how he brings victory by dying. They anticipate seeing Jesus as the one who rules physically from Jerusalem. But what they will begin to see him as is the risen Lord who died but is now alive and is ruling from the throne of heaven. They don't see that yet. They don't understand it yet. But they will. They need a different set of eyes. They also need to see a different kind of kingdom. You see, all their hopes were pent up on the fact that that Israel would now be on the map, so to speak, a political dominant force in that day. But what what they're going to be, what they're going to realize is that Jesus didn't come to install another kind of kingdom. He didn't just come to install a better Rome. He came to bring a different kingdom kind of kingdom, one that's marked by radical love, radical mercy, radical peace, radical service, radical concern for those that oppress it, that oppose them, and that are their enemies. Instead of a kingdom that crushes foes, it serves them. See, Israel had been in exile for a very long time. They had been uh, out of political influence for a very long time, and they were anticipating that time was going to end, but it wasn't going to end just yet because what Jesus was saying is that there are, two kind, there are two different kingdoms. There's a kingdom of this world, and there's a kingdom of God, and they are constantly in conflict. The disciples wanted Jesus to take the reins, kick out the Greeks, kick out the Romans, and dominate. And don't we do the same? We have a view of what the kingdom ought to look like. And it usually involves our political power in part, in, or our political party in power, and it usually involves people doing things we really voted for them to do or that we wanted them to do. It means our, our, our culture looking a particular way, embracing a, per, a, per, a, a certain ethic, Instead of being a kind of people in a world that doesn't follow Jesus, following Jesus. Recognizing that we belong to a different kind of kingdom. 
with a different kind of king. We belong to and we serve a king who loves and serves all and teaches us to love and serve all, even our enemies. He sends us to be a blessing to our city and the people around us. He calls us to take up vocation, to love and to serve through what God has called us and equipped us to do in various sectors. But he also never told us to put our hope in building an earthly kingdom because there's no hope there. Instead, he actually calls us to a different kind of hope. He gives us a different set of eyes, calls us to a different kind of kingdom, and calls us to a different kind of hope. This hope is not dominated by political power. It's not by dominating others. It's not about independence from others. Instead, those words of Zechariah should be rolling through our ears, but in a different kind of way. I want to remind you what Zechariah said. He says, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteousness, and he has salvation with him. He calls him humble. Says that he will speak peace to the nations. His rule will be from sea to sea. But I want you to listen very carefully to what he said that the disciples would have missed. He said, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare to you, or I declare that I will restore to you double. See, the disciples thought that victory was going to come through Jesus shedding the blood of his enemies. But instead, victory came as his blood was shed by his enemies. They wanted political salvation. He came to bring spiritual salvation. They wanted a freedom from tyranny. And he called them to a freedom that loves and serves and forgives. And I love this phrase in Zechariah. He calls them prisoners of hope. That's what it means to be a part of a new kind of kingdom prisoners of hope. As we step through the rest of Mark, we're going to see Jesus inter, or in, 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 invite the disciples into seeing things like this. But his invitation to us this morning is that we would see this invitation from him. You see, there's a sense in which in all of this that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, yes, there's also a sense in which he represents a new Jerusalem himself. Because what was Jerusalem to the people of Israel? It was, a, it was a place of authority, a place of corporate identity, a place of righteousness, of presence, of refuge. And it was supposed to be a place of peace. And instead, he doesn't invite them to put their hope in Jerusalem. He calls them to put their hope in himself. And this brings to mind the words of Psalm 91. Verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Verse 9. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. 
what Jesus is presenting himself as is our refuge. Where the disciples saw Jerusalem as that, at least some future hope of Jerusalem, we now see Jesus is our refuge. We see him with a new set of eyes. That's what we ask God for. Let me pray.